in this life we know and care about many people. But after they die, the person as we know them now ceases to exist. It isn't like the same person with the same personality who remembers us and recognizes us is now in some other rebirth. It's not like that. The change of the body is quite traumatic and karma scatters us like leaves in the wind. And so our dear ones of this life are born as beings in other realms that have absolutely no recollection of us, no familiarity with us. Their minds are completely under the influence of afflictions and karma and overwhelmed with the perception of that new life that they're born into. So they're completely thinking about how to get food and stay alive in whatever form, whatever world system, whatever realm they are now abiding. And yet it feels so strange because we knew them when they were a certain person here. And now that person doesn't exist anymore. When they were the person that we knew, they had so much wealth. They were a human being and had family and friends and career and social life and possessions. And now, just after a finger snap of dying and getting reborn, all those things that they had here are totally gone. Or put it this way, all those things they had here, the people, the popularity, the possessions, all stay here. But they're in their new rebirth and can't contact those things and don't even remember them, let alone enjoy them. Don't even remember us because they're involved in their new rebirth. And so, too, when we die, our minds are overwhelmed by karma and afflictions. It will be the same for us. The snap of the fingers, this ego identity vanishes. The person that we are now, other people who remain here may talk about, but that person won't exist. The continuity exists. But our experience will be one that's very different. It won't be us with our current personality, speaking English, thinking English thoughts, but just in a different body. No, not like that. We're born according to afflictions and karma. And who knows how we'll think or what we'll be, how we'll perceive the world what our karmic appearances will be. We have no idea. And since all these things in samsara are so transitory and flux all the time, momentary, there's nothing to hang on to with any lasting pleasure in them. They come and go and come and go very quickly. 
And so it's far better to put our attention on nirvana, on a state of lasting peace that doesn't decay and disintegrate. And not just the nirvana of an arhat, but we want the non-abiding nirvana of a fully awakened one. So the nirvana that abides in neither samsara nor in personal peace, self-complacent peace, but the non-abiding nirvana of a fully enlightened Buddha who works until the end of samsara to benefit sentient beings. And so what we're going to do this afternoon is one more step, some more causes that will ultimately lead us to that goal of full enlightenment. So there's a, a few things I just want to cover here and then I'll go into your questions and some other topics. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about giving back the vow. There are many criteria for taking uh, one of the Pratimoksha vows and you may remember in your ordination ceremonies, those of you who are ordained, who have any remembered remembrance of what happened to you that day, that you were asked different questions and you had to respond correctly and if uh, you didn't have any of the various obstacles then you were allowed to ordain okay Um, so I'm not going to go through those questions right now but um, in the uh, Dharma Gupta system also in the Tibetan Militia Vastavada system ordination is taken for life in the Pali uh, System, it's possible to take temporary ordination, but I don't know um, the source of that. It was coming up in one of these emails because it doesn't say explicitly in the ordination you're taking it for life, but after you take it, it says, Can you keep this precept for life? So it looks like you are taking it for life, but they have the habit, but not in all the Theravada countries, just in Burma and Thailand during temporary ordination. So that might be a new custom that happened within the last few centuries. But normally you have to have the intention to keep it for your entire life in order to receive it. Okay, so I'm talking about the actual monastic vows at this point. Okay, so somebody may have a situation where they no longer want to be a monastic or no longer can be a monastic and rather than commit a defeat in which they are, you know, distance themselves from the Sangha and create a lot of negative karma by breaking the vow, they can uh, voluntarily return the vow. Okay? So, 
There's one in, um, and the, the way to do this is simply by going to somebody who understands and says, I return my ordination. Okay? But you have to specify which ordination that you're returning. Because let's say you, you're fully ordained. You, you have the uh, lay precepts. You have the novice precepts. If you're a nun, you also have the, um, the probationary precepts. And then you have the full precepts. So you have to specify, I'm giving up my full precept, but maybe I'm going to stay as a novice, you know. Or I'm giving up all my monastic precepts, but I still have the five lay precepts. Or I'm giving up all the precepts, and I, you know, even refuge, and that's it. Okay? So um, there's, there's different ways, you know, according to somebody's mental state. But if you're ever in the situation of... You know, you're going to break a, a, one of the root precepts, then it's much better to give the ordination back, you know, in a split second before you do the act so that you don't commit the negative karma of uh, committing a defeat. But I think it's better that we pray very earnestly from the depths of our heart that we never meet that kind of situation um, for any reason at all and that I think it's important to pray and make strong aspiration to keep the ordination purely of a lot okay. so um, there's different ways of giving up the vow one is this voluntary way another way in which the vow is relinquished is if you die because the pratimoksha vows are taken only for one lifetime Okay. You might remember when you take refuge in my precepts from now until the end of my life. Yeah. So that that's what what you're doing. The bodhisattva vows and tantric vows are taken until you attain enlightenment. But the pratimoksha vows are taken only for this lifetime. So at the time of death you give them up and then if you're fortunate to have a human rebirth again in the next life, then you re, you can retake them again. Okay. A third condition in which you uh, lose your, you uh, give up the vow is if you become a hermaphrodite. So they say that this happens mostly like if people are ordained when they're very young and then as they get older they begin to have a second sexual organ. And it seems like this happens, medical science talks about it too. You know, people are born and they think they're one gender or, or the other when they're when they're babies and then when they meet reach puberty then they have get another sexual organ um, and then the other way of, of uh, relinquishing the vow is that you commit a defeat and then you you lose it but some people say that if you uh, commit a defeat then you've lost the entire ordination other people say you're like a rich person with a debt. You have the ordination, but you've broken that precept. Okay. So in that case, it would probably be wise to return the rest of the precepts so that you don't continue to, to uh, break them. So there's two different views about that. Um, the Buddha gave this method for, for giving back the precepts for specific reasons. One is to uh, help somebody avoid committing a defeat. 
And so Venerable William was saying, um, you know, if you're in the, if um, you're in danger of committing one, then it's much better to give it back. The Tibetans say this also than to break the vow, um, because at least that way you've kept them purely for the time that you've had them. Um, a second reason is to enable people to enter and leave the Sangha without hindrance. Um, and so if somebody, you know, takes the precepts and later feels like, I just can't do this, it's not working, then it's not like, you know, in Catholicism where you have to write the Vatican and get permission and they might deny permission. In Buddhism, you, make, you made the decision to enter, you make the decision to leave. Then you just have to tell somebody. And, um, and then a third reason is to avoid uh, that person being held in contempt. So if somebody um, returns the precepts and then returns to lay life, then people don't look down on them quite as much as if they had broken you know, one of their root precepts. Um, and then she was also commenting that, you know, during the, all the turmoil in China in the late 40s, that some of the monastics, uh, stopping monastics, joined the army, you know, to fight the communists, and then later fled to Taiwan and took up the, the precept again. And for those people who did that, they had to give the vow back, you know, they gave it back before they joined the army. And then they could retake it again afterwards. If you've broken one of the root precepts, you cannot retake it. But for those men who did that. Now, the women only have one chance. If you take it and give it back, that's it. You can't take it anymore in this lifetime. Unless you have a sex change and become a man, then you can do it. Um, uh, um, I don't know why there's the different criteria for men and women. Um, Venerable William was asked, and she also said she didn't know. So who knows? But it does make you be much more conscientious because you know you have this one chance and you don't want to blow it. Okay. Then um, some of your questions. Uh, how can we admonish others and have a mind free from judgment of them? How do we cultivate that? Okay, so um, this is a skill, isn't it? Because our judgmental mind likes to jump in and criticize somebody for doing something. Uh, but it's, it's the whole idea of, you know, if you have a mind that, you know, this is the way it's supposed to be done and you are doing it wrong, then you're going to have that judgmental mind that condemns other people. If you look at the precepts instead of as rules or laws that if you break your sentence to who knows what, if you look at them as trainings, okay, ways of training the mind, then here's somebody who's committed themselves to train in a certain way, but they're having a hard time doing it. And so you want to help them because you know they want to train their mind. That's why they took the ordination. But right now, their afflictions are overwhelming them, and so they aren't able to actualize what their real wish is. And so with that wish to help them, then you admonish them. 
Yeah. And so that way you're able to say it in a nice voice and in a nice way because you're talking to the part of the person that you know really wants to keep the precepts properly. Okay? If you have the judgmental mind, then you're talking to the part of the person who's not doing it right. And when you talk to that part of the person, that person's going to talk right back to you. <laughs> Aren't they? Sometimes, even if you're talking to the part of the person that you know is sincere, sometimes if that part of the person is, is hid, hidden for a while, and the part of the person that is overwhelmed by afflictions is stronger and you encounter that person but at least you know from your side you were talking to the person who really does want to keep it you know and you're offering your friendship and it's always uh, better when you do it instead of to say you're doing it wrong (laughs) to say or we're not supposed to do that um you know, to to say something like, you know, we we're you know we all kind of decided we're training our mind in this way, and I know for myself sometimes I have problems in this particular area, you know, with this particular precept, and you know I just want to point this out to you. Um, it's up to you to check it for yourself and determine it for yourself. But it looks like you might be having some of that same difficulty. And so I want to offer my friendship to you to help you if you're having a hard time. You know? So something like that. Yeah. Um, of course, in some situations, if the person's just acting totally off the wall, you have to come on a lot stronger. As in... No, we don't do that. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, there's different ways to try and approach it. But you really do it with a spirit of friendship. Okay. Because you're trying to do it for the, you know, the other person's own welfare so they aren't creating negative karma. And so that they become successful in really dealing with their crazy mind. So, similarly, you know, I mean, I always run these things by by changing the roles, okay? So, if I'm doing something and somebody comes to admonish me, how can they say it so that I'm likely to hear it, okay? I find it so good in these circumstances. Just reverse the roles, you know? How, how can somebody say something so that I am most receptive to hearing it? You know, if they come on like an authority who's telling me I'm doing it wrong, my ego comes up. Now, of course, my ego is my problem. Okay. Yeah. But that's what happens. So if that may happen with somebody else, too, then I want to avoid antagonizing that and think of a way that perhaps they can hear it. Yeah. So some people, you know, instead of saying, don't do this, you come and say, let's do it this way. Okay? Or here's how we do it. And then they, you know, hopefully they learn when you teach them one way that it means don't do it the other way. Some people are slow and they don't get it. You know, and you teach them the new way and they still do it the other way or they do a combination of the two, in which case you may have to come back and and say it again. 
okay? But sometimes just by showing somebody what to do instead of pointing out what not to do, it, it can be more effective because they can hear you a little bit better. You know, like if somebody's pointing their feet towards the altar during teachings, if you come in and say, don't point your feet towards the altar, you know, why shouldn't I point my feet? You know, where else am I going to point them? And my legs hurt. And why are you telling me this? You know, but if you come in and say, oh, we have a certain etiquette in the meditation hall. And when we stretch out our legs, we try and stretch them out towards the side so that we're not pointing them towards a Buddhist image. Then they can usually hear that. You know, oh, this is a point of etiquette. You know, etiquette isn't that... Uh, it has. It's not having an ethical con- uh, dimension, meaning that you're a bad person if you don't do. It. No, they just don't know the etiquette here. So here's the etiquette. Here's how we do it. Okay. So it's a nice way, and often people, you know, who are new, they appreciate somebody coming and telling them what to do because they don't know. Yeah. So it is very important for us to take people on, under our our wing, and you know point out to them how we do things and what the points of the etiquette are and so on and so forth. Okay? Sometimes I've noticed, though, the new people have better etiquette than the people who live here. So then the people who live here should also pay attention to how the newcomers behave. Yeah, yeah, so I think that kind of thing of, of admonishing people. You know, if you have a a heart of, of compassion and and wish somebody well, then, you know, that's a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, if a nun or a monk continues to commit sangathasesas, the remainders, um, is he or she then invited to leave? Okay. Oh, by the way, I looked in the bhikshu, uh, pradimoksha, with the remainders, um, and the bhikshuni one. The bhikshuni uh, have 17 remainders. And all of them, to break them, you either have to be, some of them you have to be admonished one time and you don't listen. Others you have to be admonished three times and you don't listen. And then that constitutes a uh, transgression. With the monks, t- uh, nine of the 13, there's no nothing about admonition. It's just if you do this action, you've transgressed the precept. And then there's four of them that uh, to transgress it, you have to uh, be admonished a few times. Okay? So there's some differences there between the monks and the nuns. Um, some of them are similar. Some of them are quite different. Yeah? The, in the, in the Sangha category, there's some that are are very different and then some that are similar. Okay, so if there's somebody who's like doing one Sangha Vasesa after the other, generally this person is going to be pretty uncooperative and difficult to live with. Okay? And one of the uh, criteria for temporary expulsion that we came upon yesterday was refusing to accept others' admonition. Okay? or refusing to admit your wrongdoing, or refusing to uh, repent and give up your your, uh, wrong views. So if somebody is repeatedly doing one Sangha Vasesa after another and being very uncooperative and difficult to admonish, then 
you know, it could seem very likely that you would ask that person to kind of take a break and, you know, kind of stay a little bit aside and contemplate their actions and so on. Now, for the big shoes where it's only four of them that have to do with admonishment, it, it would probably be different. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um... Okay, I'm imagining that the abbess or abbots confess to the Buddha if uh, one's own community members have been fully ordained for a certain number of years, uh, do the abbess and abbot then confess with the community of the fully ordained people? Yes, you know, the abbot or abbess is also a, a sangha member, so they, they confess in the, in the, uh, the posada ceremony. Now, the traditional way of doing posada is that you, uh, you know, as it's written in the Vinaya, uh, you know, that some of the confessions are made in front of the entire Sangha community. Uh, most of the lapses are made to an individual who is pure in that particular precept. Um, the rules of etiquette, the, the trainings, the last category, those you can just do yourself, you know, confess in your own uh, one. So, there is this element of telling somebody else. What is interesting is in the Tibetan system, they don't do this. I was, uh, if you've read the, the um, transcripts that I, that I sent out for your monastic folders, uh, one of the, the Geshe's was saying that, uh, I don't know how many years ago, you know, centuries ago, they stopped doing it in the tr- Tibetan tradition, but it seems like a few people started to try and confess to each other before Sochon and that it just brought up too many arguments <laughs> so they didn't do it um, in the Dharma Guptaka uh, what I've noticed and we can ask Venerable Jendi more but what I've noticed is that generally uh, when you know you do the verse that we do at the beginning slowly you're declaring all your your breakages to, to the Buddha yeah and that's considered sufficient you don't necessarily have to say them out loud although we should check there might be some communities where they do say them out loud um, in the Tibetan what you do instead is you say I've committed immeasurable faults in the, in the, you know, in the category of remainder and I committed immeasurable faults in the category of lapses with forfeiture so you make this kind of blanket confession just saying I've committed measureless faults in all these categories yeah and that's considered okay that way then you don't have to really say it to anybody so you avoid the embarrassment but then sometimes the embarrassment of saying it to somebody is what helps you stop doing it yeah or as they found sometimes they quarreled afterwards um so I think what you know as we're doing it here we're trying to mention it to each other and so um, you know it's just a way of kind of being open and clear about it and that way we can also seek each other's help if we're having a problem with something and we learn to be a little bit more honest so Venerable Tarpa and I do it with each other you know when we're doing, when we're doing it and then when we have enough bhikshunis then we'll you know, everybody do it together. 
Okay. Then um, the next one was about um, the seven ways to end disputes, because those were the last seven, the, the last category of the um, of the precepts. And so what I thought I would spend the rest of the session going through is something that is in your monastic binder, but you may not have looked at. <laughs> and it's called uh, Preventing and Remedying Disputes in the Sangha. And I took it from um, Majjhimunikaya number 104. And of course, this also comes in the Vinaya as well. Okay, so I'll just read what I what I um, gave to you. Most of it is quoted from the sutra, but I tried to abbreviate it because the sutra said many things in a repeated way. Okay, so there's six kind of mental attitudes or psychological states from which um, disputes arise, and these are called the six roots of dispute. Okay, and if we don't take care of our mind then these six come in our mind and then we very easily can do things that provoke arguments and disharmony in the community. So it could be disharmony in the whole community, it could be an argument with one particular person. Okay? And these arguments may be about personal issues, they may be about the Dharma and the Vinaya, you know, what the correct teaching on emptiness is or what the correct way of keeping this precept is. Um... It could be about any topic. And very often, and this pertains to human uh, communication in general, very often the initial topic is something very small, but because we don't communicate well about it, then the conflict becomes huge. And the subject of the conflict is no longer the tiny point that we started with, but it becomes how somebody communicated with us. Yeah? So it could be, you know, oh, you, you forgot to buy peanut butter, you know. So it's, I mean, forgetting to buy peanut butter is no big deal. But if you come and, you know, you say to your spouse or you say to another monastic, you didn't get the peanut butter, you know, come on, what's happening with you, you lazy bum? Then, you know, at that point, the way you're communicating becomes a much more forceful issue than the peanut butter. And the person's going to react to the way you're communicating and react to that, of course, and they'll be angry or they'll, they'll withdraw and slam the door and not talk to you and then you feel like they're rejecting you. And then the, the communication becomes about that. Oh, you're yelling at me. You won't talk to me. You're withdrawing and never communicate. You always make me feel unsafe because you're screaming. You know? And it becomes that. And the peanut butter is long gone. Yeah? Long gone. So if we pay um, very close attention to how we communicate, then it's, it's really possible to avoid a lot of these quarrels and, um, and disharm- disharmonious situations, okay? So it just takes a bit of kind of mindfulness on our part, yeah? Okay, because if one of these six, um, six roots of dispute becomes active in our mind, then we usually speak or do something motivated by it. 
and then that takes over the whole thing. So we have to really watch our mind for these particular attitudes, you know, these attitudes in particular. Okay, so the first one is anger and malice. So anger, we, lo- we lose our temper quickly. The anger flares up. It doesn't kind of come gradually. It just flares up. And somebody's trying to say some small thing to us, but we just go, you know, inside, and then it comes out. Yeah, so that's the source of conflict. Or if somebody has a lot of malice, and so they're angry, but the anger festers inside. It becomes uh, resentment. It becomes hostility. It becomes the wish for revenge, because we're holding the anger inside. We're not communicating with the person. So then what happens is we tend to pick fights in the community. You know, we're, we're holding on to our anger, we're ruminating, we're sulking. And, you know, we won't come out and say, you know, something's going on between us or, you know, there's, we need to talk. But you, you give some kind of jab here and some kind of jab there and pick a fight. Okay? Or we do what I know very well is you sulk. And you wait for somebody else to come and, because they care so much about you, come and ask you if anything's wrong. Okay? And when they come, because, you know, you're sulking, you're just quiet, withdrawn, and they come and say, is anything wrong? You look really unhappy. And then I go, no, nothing's wrong. <laughs> you know, the whole time I've been waiting for somebody to come and ask me if something's wrong because I'm so unhappy. I feel cut off from others, but I won't go talk to them. You know, I just want them to come talk to me. But when they come talk to me, nothing's wrong. You know, that is really hard for people to deal with. Okay, so this kind of attitude. Do any of you do that? <laughs> yeah? Never? I'm the only one? Oh, I am so famous for this one. Actually, I've gotten much better because I realize how totally stupid it is. You know? But it's a, a real way of, you know, oh no, nothing's wrong. Everything's okay. You know? And two hours earlier, I was crying because nobody cared about me enough to to see that I was suffering and that they should drop everything they were doing and come and take care of me. Okay. Then, (laughs) okay, I told you my mother called me Sarah Bernhardt when I was little. It was a reason. Okay, then the second one is uh, contempt, being contemptful and domineering. Okay, so this could be contemptful or domineering. You know, it doesn't have to be and. Okay, but if we're somebody who's very uh, arrogant and conceited, then we really enjoy putting other people down and we enjoy uh, dismissing or even slandering their good qualities. And, um, or we're very insolent and arrogant and we try and dominate and control others. So sometimes we try and dominate and control others in a really aggressive way, you know. It's like, I'm here and I'm exuding my big energy and the group, you know, or this one individual better get that, you know, my big energy is here and they better, you know, 
bow down to my ego and do things my way. There's that way of being controlling. And then there's another way of being controlling in which we manipulate. Okay? Now, people all very often say that women are manipulative. Okay? My theory about this is that when you are not given equal power, then you find other ways to assert your wishes. And so then the only alternative left is to manipulate. So hopefully if we have equal power, that doesn't happen. But we all have our own little ways of manipulating. Okay? And they can be so sneaky and so subtle. And like I was just telling you mine, you know, I go sulk until somebody comes and says what's wrong. Yeah? And that's very manipulative. Um... I would, when I was uh, just at another place, somebody was telling me that that one nun uh, who was living in the house was saying, I'm allergic to incense. Nobody can, do, can burn incense here. And they were commenting that that was a very controlling thing because, you know, I'm allergic to it. Nobody can do it. Then nobody else has any power. Actually, what happened is they took that to, to their teacher and he said... You can't tell somebody not to burn incense in the house. If they want to offer incense to the Buddha, it's their right. And I was, and then so people started offering incense. I lived in the house. That nun didn't seem to have any big problem with the incense, you know. But lots of times it's like, oh, I need it to be this way, otherwise I can't function. And the group's got to follow my way of doing it because I cannot adapt and change to any other way. And that can be a, a way of manipulation, can't it? You know, you know, I'm going to fall apart physically and die unless everybody does something this way. Yeah. So, you know, we have our own ways of being domineering, don't we, and controlling. And, and those are just some examples. I'm sure maybe you have some more examples you want to share with the group. Who has an example? Yeah? repeat that so it goes in the recorder because these examples are very good so you're saying that you've been noticing with yourself that you're a naturally friendly person but sometimes you're friendly and you have an ulterior motive because you want somebody to do something for you and so you're nice and sweet and then you pop the question and they like you by then and so they do what you want 
But you've been noticing also that when you do that, when you're genuinely friendly, then you come away feeling really happy from the interaction. But when there's this manipulation of trying to get somebody to do something, you don't feel so so good afterwards. Yeah. Okay. Other examples. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. At least for me, it's a lot of fear, but there's still that. Uh, actually, just say no, uh, or instead of dropping hints. Yeah. Okay. So, so passive aggressive behavior is definitely manipulative, isn't it? Yeah. And so, can you give me an example of. I don't think of it as domineering. Yeah. Because. For me, it oftentimes is a fear that the reason why I'm being passive about making my point uh-huh. is not because uh, uh, arrogance is more fear than yeah. similar. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, so so here you're making your point by being very passive, mm-hmm. and it's because you're fearful, not because you're you're being domineering. But the way the fear is making you act in that passive way and then throwing in an aggressive thing every here and there, you know, while looking very innocent, that that is a quote-unquote safe way of expressing what you want in an indirect way, yeah, without being domineering. Yeah. Other examples? Uh Uh-huh. I think it's similar to what what you were describing, and that is that um, act in a way that people, though I may be agitated, that people will feel sorry for me. Mm. You know, in some way, get them to approach. So my, my tendency often is to retreat. But then, mm-hmm. you know, somehow coaxing that or eliciting their kind of coming. So I might not say, it might be the place where I might come out, or I might even say something like, I have been waiting for you to ask me, as opposed to nothing's wrong. Uh-huh. But that sense of kind of, um, yeah, standing back and, and doing whatever to, to call, call somebody to come forward to me, rather than just coming out and right. saying, saying how I feel. Right, okay. So rather than saying how you feel, doing withdrawing but doing some kind of behavior that's giving the message to the other people that they should come to you and ask if something's wrong. And you may then say what it is, but or you may not, you know, but definitely it's kind of giving the responsibility to the other person to solve the problem. Yeah. I'm not going to deal with this until... In, in, in deep, subtle ways that kind of elicit that. Yeah, that, so. yeah. So doing things that make people feel sorry for us, that make a, make them want to help us, because we're such a nice guy. Or help, or, you know, I'm helpless in a particular situation. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's like maybe Ed and I didn't follow through on something, but then it's kind of like instead of just coming out with excuses, it may be that in some way. Overwhelm, or you know, whatever, but yeah. in a way that it's not a defensive way, mm-hmm. but it's a way that the people might, you know, feel sorry for you yeah. and not blame you. Yeah. 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 Okay. So instead of giving many excuses. 
then you just say, I, I was helpless, I'm overwhelmed, I have too much to do, and I wasn't sure what, if you, I wasn't sure what you really wanted, um, you know, all, the, all this kind of thing, kind of like I need help, instead of being forthright about what's really going on. Yeah. And when I was thinking when you were talking about different energies, mm-hmm. in some ways I think of them as all being our personal dramas. We create a persona or a drama in whatever way it is, whether it's retreating or being angry, but we yeah. create a persona that... Yeah. Um, yeah, like I was saying before, we dig our hole, we decorate it, <laughs> and then we jump in and live in it, and we just live out our own personal dramas again and again. In whatever situation, you know, it's like we're so um, unable to look at situations freshly that we just, you know, there's something that smacks of something from before and then we just do, okay, here's my push-button response of how I handle it. And we play out our personal drama. Yeah, and I think sometimes from our little holes that we created. Yeah. We're launching grenades even though we're not. You bet. Oh, yeah. We're in our own space. I'm there kind of throwing the arms out, you know, just to let them know that I'm still there. Right. Oh, that's good, yeah. Just make a great skit, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, we dig our hole, we decorate it, we jump in. Yeah, we pretend there's no hole, but we're throwing grenades out at everybody else so that they don't forget that we're unhappy. (laughs) And so that then they'll say, oh, poor dear, why are they throwing grenades? They must be unhappy. I should go help them. But who wants to help somebody throwing grenades? (laughs) You know, you can't get near to help them. One, one kind of way is that you pretend to be speaking nicely, but actually what you're doing is flattening the person <laughs> and making them lose their self-confidence and yeah, putting them down. But it all looks very sweet and innocent because of what you're saying. Yeah, and that way it's very self-protective because then the person can't come back and say, "Oh, you were so mean, you were so nasty." You know, cause it all, it all, you know, it all looks quite sweet, doesn't it? Yeah. I tried, but it didn't work. Um, so the day that we were doing the chainsaw disassembly, mm-hmm. I just had no clue, and I really didn't want to do it with them because I came to jump up because I have no clue what the names of the tools are. Even. So we do this thing together and start taking this apart. So I just kept thinking, I wasn't consciously being manipulative, but I was just hoping they would rescue me. You know, I don't know what a scrinch is, I don't know what that thing is, I don't know where it goes, I don't know what it must be. So I was just sort of like waiting, but they wouldn't let me bail. 
She kept waiting for me and then showed me what to do in the verifications, but I kept hoping that you just can do it for me. what he was saying is that you know you saw yourself as helpless you know and like I don't even know what the parts of the chainsaw are I don't know what I'm doing you know you guys come rescue me and do it for me and yet they they kept on and, and taught you so that you would gain that skill I do that one too mm-hmm. yeah I was like oh I don't know how to do it somebody else do it yeah uh huh I can teach you how to do it Actually, I was thinking not an example, but I was thinking uh, in reference to the withdrawing. Like for me, I don't like to um, act out in certain ways. There's kind of a a social inhibitor that keeps me from, you know, doing things that I see as uncouth, Mm -hmm. and so I withdraw and I work on it in my own place. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I still do the thing where I would draw, you know, sometimes and then you don't ask me when you try to, you know, do play that stupid game. But more often than not, I would draw and with the intention, and I do spend the time working mm-hmm. with my mind oh, yeah. and getting out of it. Mm-hmm. And so usually when I see other people withdraw, that's what I think they just want the space to work with their mind. Oh. So I don't, my initial, in, my initial response is give them space. Uh-huh. They want space, give them space. If it was me, I would want to be given some space so that I can look at it. Uh-huh. And I can work with it. And then, you know, what I do is I figure out, and then I say to myself, well, this situation is going to come up again, and here's how I want to act in the situation. And then I put it all down. And then later I just go on and then the situation always comes up again and I have to deal with it. But it doesn't become a big, you know, carrying a burden. And so I expect that that kind of unconsciously expect that's what other people are doing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you're saying that when you withdraw, it's because you you don't want to dump it on other people and you want to work on your mind, so you withdraw. So when you see other people withdraw, you're assuming that they just need space to work on their mind and you don't come and, and, and you just give them the space. And then that leaves people like Kevin and me feeling like nobody cares. And then we start throwing the grenades. Yeah. But you see, we're expecting you to mind read. See, that's the thing. When you do this passive aggressive thing, you're expecting somebody else to mind read. Yeah. You should know what I feel even if I don't tell you. And you should meet my needs and play my game, even if you don't want to. (laughs) Okay? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It may be off kind of the topic of it, but for me, I don't know what the rest of the six are, understanding that people think differently and process differently 
it makes such a difference when yep. I can create the space to even hold that as a possibility because my mm -hmm. like inherent existence, my way that I always click into is this person, like John Pelosi said, this person, of course, thinks just like me, so why would they be throwing grenades at me and just run off the process? Yeah. <laughs> but, but when I can do that and yeah. just even, not even understand it, but if I can at least envision that they might think differently than me, yeah. A real shift in terms of being able to not take it so personally, or not be so offended, or want to yeah. lash out. Yeah. But it's hard to cultivate that. Right, and that and that's the big thing, and that's the challenge of in community is to realize that in one way we're all the same, and in another way we think very differently. And so not to assume, like he's assuming that somebody wants to be left alone, you know, or not to assume like we assume that somebody should know that they should come talk to us. But, you know, people think very, very differently. And that we shouldn't impute our... We shouldn't think, if I were doing that action, that would be my motivation. Yeah. Which is often what we do. Yeah. We never ask the other person what's going on with them. We just assume that because they're doing X, Y, and Z, it's for ABC motivation. Because that's what we would be having. Yeah? And it's not. So I think that's one of the real big things in communicating is, you know, yeah, other people think differently. I really don't know what's going on if I don't ask. Actually, maybe they think exactly the same, just in different situations. Because <laughs> I know, as uh -huh. I'm saying, you know, the way I usually go back, that's the way I usually do it. But also, sometimes I, you know, dig a hole and jump in back too. Yeah. So it's not that it's it's just different times. And different then, times. It right. actually also seems that if rather than if my, which is from my side, just expecting <laughs> people are going to work on it, if I just kind of open my eyes and look, you can pretty much read people pretty well, especially mm -hmm. that, well, as to whether or not they're carrying around a ton of bricks, is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. So if I just stopped and looked, it wouldn't, and, and just remembered, oh, that was kind of a situation, maybe, maybe that person will be working on that, or maybe, you know, they might carry that around, and so to just kind of check in later, not actually talk to them, but just kind of observe them, and then if it looks like there's an issue, maybe mm -hmm. talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, so be kind of open-minded and not so sure that our first interpretation is the right one. Well, even for ourselves, you know, sometimes going off and processing on your own is very effective, and sometimes going off and processing your own is deadly. <laughs> and you don't always know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, sometimes just, you know, taking some space, processing on our own is exactly what we need to do and it's very helpful. We solve it. We come back. Other times we tell ourselves I'm going to process on my own and we just dig ourselves de deeper into the hole. Yeah? And we just keep digging and digging. It's like I'm going to get to China. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Whereas if we you know, would get have a little bit of courage and go talk to somebody. You know, one conversation sometimes can be very helpful in dispelling whatever we're holding on to. The three of you didn't have any examples of manipulating. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, you just try and dominate, huh? Okay. Uh, so you don't even need to tell us that you do that because we should know no, that. No, I was kind of like trying to find a Okay. Okay. Um, so for insolent, act arrogantly or try to dominate and control others, we will easily go on a power trip and divide the Sangha in an attempt to promote our own importance or the importance of our view or the importance of our way of doing things or to get personal attention, okay? So if we're contemptful of other people, we don't like to listen, we're domineering, we want to control the whole thing, then it becomes very easy to create a lot of disharmony in the community because we're so attached to my view, my way of doing things, my group, you know, everybody who supports me versus everybody who doesn't believe in my view. And it becomes very easy to really create a lot of ruckus in a community, which is very, very damaging. Okay, then um, the third one is envy and miserliness. Okay, so so these are two different emotions, but here they're kind of going together. So instead of rejoicing at other success and good qualities, we're jealous, we're envious, we, we want what they have. And instead of sharing our possessions and our knowledge, we keep them for ourselves. Okay, and so if we do like that, then our behavior creates a lot of discord in the community. Okay, so we're miserliness, we don't want to show, and the kind of, the miserliness fits in with the envy, you know, because they have that, they have that quality, they have that thing, they can do this, I don't like it, but here I have my own little thing, so I'm going to be, you know, hold on to it and be stingy with it myself and not share with others. So it's really, you know, the quite a lot of self-centeredness and an inability to rejoice at, at others' good qualities and at their good fortune. And so the Buddha spoke of five kind of things that a, uh, a monastic can be miserly about. So as a monastic, we're not supposed to have a lot of possessions, but still we find a way to be miserly. So first one is um, dwellings. Yeah, This is my room. I'm not going to share my room with you. Yeah. You, somebody else, you know, a guest comes, they can go sleep somebody else. This is my space. My space. Don't you get it? <laughs> okay. Second thing monastics can be very um, envious and, and stingy about is supporters. So we don't want to introduce our benefactors to other people because maybe our benefactors will give a donation to them and not to us. So we're kind of very jealous and possessive of our benefactors. You know, we're, we're always around them. We don't want them to meet our friends. We don't want them to go to other temples. Yeah, we don't want them to meet other teachers because they might give a donation to somebody else, and that means I don't get it. Okay, this happens. Um, third one is offerings, where we don't share what we receive with others in the community. We save it for ourselves. 
instead of sharing. Um, the fourth one is praise, that we're very stingy about our praise. We don't want to uh, praise others in front of a group because then the other people will think that they're really good and then they won't think I'm so good. Okay? So we're very stingy about our, our praise because um, we're envious of somebody else's good qualities and if we praise them, the other people will like them more than they like us or give them more things than they give us. So we don't praise people in front of a group. And the fifth thing that monastics can be um, envious about or, or stingy about is the Dharma. So, you know, I don't want to explain a certain point to somebody. I don't want to give them a certain teaching because then they'll know as much as me or maybe they'll actually learn more than me. And if they know more than me, then where am I? And so not sharing the Dharma. And that's really rotten. That's really nasty, nasty, you know, to not share the Dharma out of an ego-driven motivation. Okay, so that was the third one, envy and miserliness. Fourth is dissimulation and pretension. And so these, uh, with dissimulation and pretension, we also very easily cause conflict in the community. What dissimulation is, is we hide our faults. Okay, We hide our faults. We hide our mistakes. We have a myriad of excuses to cover up what we did because we don't want somebody to know we didn't do something or that we made a mistake or that we don't know something or we don't have what, you know, whatever it is. So we cover things up. That's dissimulation. And pretension is we pretend to have good qualities we don't have. Okay? So... You know, these two are also quite poisonous because we're, to- we're being totally deceitful, pretending to be different than we are. What we don't know, we pretend to know. You know? What we... Yeah. And, uh, you know, all our mistakes, we hide away. We don't let anybody see them. We're not very forthright. You know? Even somebody asks a question, you know, we can't answer it straight. We, we exit left, exit right. Yeah, so being very, you know, not acknowledging our mistakes and then pretending to have good qualities that we don't have. Oh, I I learned this before, I learned that before. Oh, I'm very good doing this, I'm very good doing that. Yeah, and so trying to look good, but not really being that way. And so um, pretension can also be like, um, you know, your benefactor comes, or benefactors come, and all of a sudden we're so nice and sweet and holy, and, uh, you know, our altar is is nice, and our rooms are clean, and da-da-da-da-da, because we look really good. And then as soon as the benefactor goes, we just, you know, go to bed at 7 o'clock and sleep until 7 (laughs) o'clock. Yeah. Okay. Then the fifth one is um, having evil wishes and wrong views. So evil wishes are the eight worldly concerns. We want wealth and power and reputation and position, prominence, attention, popularity. Um, So having those evil wishes, if we're motivated by them, those create a lot of conflict in community. And also if we have a lot of wrong views about the Dharma and we're stubbornly attached to our wrong views, 
then even somebody tries to, you know, discuss something with us, we don't want to hear it, even if they, you know, bring us the, the proof that our view is wrong, we, you know, come up with some kind of ridiculous argument why, why you know, to push that away. Okay, so holding on to our wrong views very stubbornly and having really evil wishes or bad motivations, you know, can create a lot of conflict that way. And then the sixth one is adhering tenaciously to our own views and opinions and relinquishing them with difficulty. Okay? So when we're very attached to our views, we're very attached to our opinions, we're very attached to our wants, we're very attached to our needs, then we become very difficult to talk to because we want to win every single argument, okay? We are not going to back down on anything, even if we're wrong, because we enjoy winning, okay? And so we like to put other people's people down, telling them that they don't know, that they don't know what they're talking about, and we humiliate other people because we have to have the last word and win the conversation, win the battle. So then we become very difficult to live with, don't we? Yeah, because nobody can talk to us. It's my way or the highway. Okay, so those are the, um, the, the six, what did he call them? Six roots of dispute. Okay, anger and malice. Contempt and being domineering, envy and miserliness, dissimulation and pretension, evil wishes and wrong views, and um, adhering tenaciously to our views and opinions. You know, really arguing to the end. Yeah, it's got to be this way. And usually what we argue about, I mean, sometimes it might be a Dharma point, but sometimes it might be some really ridiculous thing you know I mean the vacuum cleaner gets put in this closet not that closet and I am going to win this argument about where the vacuum cleaner goes yeah and people are going to put it where I want it put and no place else and it actually has nothing to do with the vacuum cleaner does it and it has everything to do with our attachment to our own opinions and views and ways of doing things. Okay, so there's only ten more minutes, and I'm obviously not going to get through everything. Um, <laughs> um, so, you have questions? Yeah. didn't really understand way back at the beginning mm-hmm. when you were talking about giving back ordination mm-hmm. or one when a person commits a defeat. Mm-hmm. And he said, some say that you lose the whole or nation, mm-hmm. which is what I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. The other one, I think, is that you're sustained. You, okay. you still are fully ordained, but you lose one precept? Yeah, the, the, so there's two different views. One is that if you break one precept from the root, you lose all the other precepts. Mm-hmm. The other view is you still have all the other precepts, but that one is broken. Mm-hmm. So that's why they give the an- analogy of a rich person with a debt. 
because you're rich because you have the other precepts but you have a debt because you broke that one okay so there's two different views on that uh-huh. I have two questions. One uh, on that same topic area. One is about um, people giving back their precepts right before they break their vow. Uh huh. You said it they has to be to someone who can hear. It has to be to a person. Yeah, who can hear and understand. Okay. So you can't say to the cat. You can't say to the Buddha. That's what I've heard people say that they gave the precept back to the Buddha right before they broke the vow. Uh, and usually you have to say to a human being or a person who understands. You know. I don't know that about. I mean, maybe that works, but um, you know. But usually, if you're going to break a precept from the root, there's a human being there with you. You know, because all of them, there's a human being as the object. Yeah. You say they must they have to understand. Yeah. I mean, they have to be like understand kind of some basis of what Buddhism is and what being well No, is. they just have to understand the meaning of what you're saying. Okay. okay. So it just has to be a human that can hear and understand things. Right, and yeah, speaks your language and mm-hmm. yeah, like that. And then my other question is about um, the Christ had heard has been redeemed and disrobed and redeemed and disrobed yeah. a few times. Okay, now the thing is she um, was a shamanera, mm-hmm. shamanerica, and you know, gave back and then ordained and then gave back and and so there's some discussion within the Mulashravasavada if Shramanarikas can you know, disrobe and give uh, and then reordain. And it seems I mean I've known some that have, but I'm talking about Bhikshuni. Mm-hmm. If you're a Bhikshuni, that's you know, that's it. If you're a Bhikshuni and you give back your ordination I, you know, because you're going to break it or something like that, I think you may still be able to retake the Shramanera. Mm. But I'm not completely sure about that. If you break it, then definitely not. Mm. Okay, but I'm not completely sure on that. Okay. Mm-hmm. This was really from yesterday. You were talking about having created a schism within the Sangha uh-huh. and being asked to leave. Yeah. Is, that, is it then appropriate, or can that person then go to another sangha, to another community, ah, and, and another sangha okay. community, and be welcome? But, you know. Yeah. Okay, so somebody's living with one community. They're asked to leave because they're causing a schism. Can they go to another community? Technically, as far as I understand, they can, but hopefully... Um, their reputation will precede them mm-hmm. and the other community will be very cautious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Should I sit quietly? Due to this merit, very soon attain the enlightened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that point have no decline, but increase forevermore.